Good morning, good afternoon. How you doing out there? How are you doing out there today? This is David Robert for the Marketplace of Ideas podcast. I hope you're having a wonderful and great day as we celebrate the last day of the month. It is August the 31st. And as we enter into the fall, just want to let you know that you can find the Marketplace of Ideas podcast wherever you get your podcast. We're talking Google, Podbean, Stitcher, um, Google Play, iTunes, you name it, we're there, rocking and rolling. You can find us. We've got some great stuff coming. We've got some good episodes already in the can, ready to go. And so check us out. Again, the Marketplace of Ideas podcast. Um, give us a, a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think. And yeah, uh, thank you for, just want to thank you for taking the time out to listen to this episode. Um, this is going to be a second parter to my last episode of Losing My Religion, in which try to examine and look at what uh, changes are going on within the faith communities within the West, particularly within uh, the Christian Judeo um, experience um, in America and Canada. And this one in particular is interesting because it happened over the course of two years for myself and probably a lot of other people of my background. Um, My family's from the Caribbean, Grenada and Trinidad, and I was born here in Canada. And so being a first generation um, in a land where you're not necessarily seen as a quote-unquote native Canadian and you're not connected to your parents homeland outside of just lineage you kind of like you kind of feel like you're in no man's land a little bit and no more so than being in the church you know to feel that um, growing up in the 80s and the 90s it was not like it is today where you know, even though there's there's racism and bigotry, there was a lot less celebration of black excellence and, um, you know, black accomplishments, as it were. And when I say black, I mean the whole diaspora of what it means to be descendants of Africa, who still are very um, mentally gifted, if that's a word, you know, but people from every part of that continent um, and also, you know, the Caribbean and, and wherever else you hail from. But, um... The church has been going through some upheavals, and for me, I'll give you a little backtrack here. For myself, it started right around when COVID hit. So in March of 2020, I was attending a service with the family, and it was when they were having communion. I noticed that um, more and more people were talking about COVID, and more and more people were talking about this virus that was coming along down the pipe, and what to look for, and you know, it just seemed pretty pretty uh, it seemed like things were going to get to get to a point where hey you know what it looks like we might be getting into an issue where large gatherings probably wouldn't be the best um the best thing to do right so i was like okay well you know let me keep a watch on this thing and so we kind of stopped going to church myself and the family at around march of that year you know so right right after february start of March there, we said, okay, let's kind of see what this is about. And then as things progressed, as everyone who was still with us um, realizes is that, hey, things took a, a turn for, uh, it went from zero to contagion slash quiet place slash you name it in a, in a, in a hot minute. And around Mar- the end of March, my gym shut down. Most all venues for concerts, for restaurants, for um 
large-scale gatherings, offices, everyone was sent home. And if you weren't seen as essential, you were told to shelter in place. You know, and that took place from, from March until July of that year. And we didn't really get on a roll again until July, right up until December. And then things just shut down again. And things didn't, and I mean, from December, January, February, March, literally till the, I believe it was the start of March, things didn't get up and running again. And then we had another month where things just stopped. And then it wasn't until we started again after that March. And our province just said, screw it. Here in Alberta, they were like, we don't care how many people die. We're done, right? Because when people got this virus, then you had to take 10, four, 10 to 14 days to let it run through, run its course. And then you'd have to test you know, negative. Well, there weren't any tests being distributed and the tests that you could get were, were backlogged, you know, and on top of that, there wasn't necessarily a, a, um, oh, what am I looking for? Um, in the beginning, there wasn't a vaccine. And so talk was that it could take upwards to five to 10 years to come up with a vaccine. And so, you know, we were staring down the barrel of this gun thinking, okay, is this how society ends? You know, is this how things fall apart? You know, word to the roots, right? How things fall apart. But during that time period, when everybody felt like, man, we're all coming together, um, we're all work, we're all in this together. People were making banana bread, you know. Pe- um, people were like um, clapping for the uh, the nurses. If you if you all remember that, we were talking about bending the curve, you know, and everybody everybody was in it together, and that lasted for a good two weeks, but give or take three, and then people started to get antsy, and then talk started to about hey why, why aren't we going back to work when, when are we going to get back hey you know what this is just a cold it's not real it's a, it's fake news and, and then the politicizing of it happened and then the anti-vaxxers got into it and then the conspiracy theorists got in and it it turned into this cauldron of crap this pressure cooker of shit if you would it turned into a a kerfuffle of garbage and just a dumpster fire of, of epic proportions. It was, it was everywhere. It was, you know, sports teams had, had, had closed up shop and, and nobody was flying anywhere and restaurants were having to throw out food and then the oil prices crashed because no one's driving anywhere. And then you start to see animals returning back to New York Harbor, like on some apocalyptic type of stuff. And I, I'll never forget this. It was like April, yeah, about April there where I was, um, where I just took a drive. I said, I got to get out of the house. And I just took a drive. And um, the, it, it, everything just felt like it had fallen apart. You know, nobody was on the streets. And it was around that time, too, when everything was that dark, that kind of brown, gray, like all the snow had melted. And so everything had kind of left. And so right around that March period, through about that whole April, it was just rush. If you weren't essential and you weren't like life and death to leave your house, you only left for medical reasons or food. You know, I, I remember not seeing my mother probably that year. I probably saw her maybe three or four times. It was pretty touchy because again, you, you know, you'd want to go and visit a family member and then all of a sudden, oh, somebody's sick. Oh crap. Okay. So that means all of us got to, you know, um, kind of contain what's going on until, until it's, until it's, it runs through the whole family. You know, that could take anywhere from two weeks to six to eight weeks. You know, my wife's sister had to do the same and 
And at the time when they were taking it really seriously, if you left the house, there was a chance that you can get arrested because, you know, um, health services were driving up and down and people were ratting on each other. It was crazy. Like it was, it's, it's the closest I ever want to get to the, to the collapse of society. Right. And, and, you know, you pray to God that you don't, you, you don't, that things like this don't happen. But what took place was, like I was saying before, was this feeling of togetherness, this feeling of, oh man, we're all in this together and we're, we're going to make it through. Right. And we're, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to survive this. Right. And subsequently that spring, you know, George Floyd happens. And what I mean by happens, he died. And what I mean by that he died, he was killed. He was murdered broad daylight. You know, a man who, um, if, mem- if, if, the, if the reports were correct, he was on, 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 a, a t- on some form of narcotic or drunk. And he had tried to pass off a, con- a counterfeit $20 bill, had resisted arrest. And they put him in the back of, of the squad car and he was complaining about his stomach and he was complaining about his, you know, he couldn't breathe properly and he, he had been subdued. He had no weapons on him. Um, he, and he was dragged out from that car and by, you know, the police officer we won't name because, you know, um, enough has been said about him, but stood on his, you know, kneeled on his neck. And for those, those minutes, he gasped and begged and pleaded and cried out for, for help, you know, claiming he can't breathe. He started yelling out that he's, he's seeing his mother. You know, the coroner later found that it was, you know, due to asphyxiation and, and the conditions that he had been placed in had subsequently taken his life. And so there was this huge backlash and this feeling of anger and betrayal because here we were going through this collectively. You know, in the 80s you had the Cold War, but that was, that was kind of between America and Russia in various parts of the 80s and 90s with the with, you know various financial um, issues and problems you had people suffering different part like different parts of America were suffering or where Canada people were suffering in a different way when it came to the the economy or if it's weather you might have you know typhoons and tornadoes and earthquakes and fires and floods real wrath of god stuff all throughout different parts of the world, but never at the same time. And this was one of the few times where outside of pretty much a world war, we had a collective issue that it didn't care if you were black, brown, Republican, conservative, gay, straight, trans, disabled, abled, English speaking, you know, uh, Japanese speaking, whatever. It was affecting everybody, rich and old, young and poor, you know, from celebrities to people that no one would ever know their names were getting hit with this and out creeps out the remnants of Jim Crow and apartheid and you know that original sin of racism and slavery and you know just all these things bubble up when we're trying to be a people that's like let's come together nope can't do that you know um (laughs) you know we we can't we just we can't we can't even in a crisis we have to find a way to bring forth, you know, uh, white supremacy and everything else. And there were a lot of people that said that George Floyd 
you know, it wasn't due to racism, that the policemen actually knew him, and that it was just bad policing. But regardless of what it was, it still resulted in, in a, a white police officer putting his knee on a black man's neck and him dying. And then we had Breonna Taylor that same year, if I'm not mistaken, where, you know, she was an uh, EMT or an EM, or a EMT assistant. She worked in healthcare. She was staying at her boyfriend's place. And there was a no-knock raid. Guns were fired. Subsequently, uh, the, there was no drugs found on the scene, yet she ended up dying. And then you had Amadou uh, Aubrey. If, I, if, I'm, if I'm messing up his name, I'm sorry, it's, it's, uh, that's a hard one to pronounce. A young man was jogging in a neighborhood where there had been some uh, burglaries earlier um, that, that year. And so... Two gentlemen and another, well, not gentlemen at all, but two um, residents of that community got in their trucks and, you know, chased the young man down who was on foot, who wasn't stealing anything. A scuffle ensued and this young man is dead. In this time period, three people of black origin, you know, gunned down. They're home on the street while jogging and while in custody. And you start to think, I thought we were in this together. You know, as, as more and more things start to come out, you start to realize that the richer countries are starting to buy up all of the vaccines, which are leaving i.e. the poorer countries in the continent of Africa and in the Caribbean to get basically the leftovers, you know? I believe Canada, the country that I'm, I'm in, you know, and I'm thankful for this, but on the other hand, you realize we were talking about boosters well before countries that literally had their healthcare workers not get inoculated um, from this virus who were treating people who couldn't even, even get it. Places like India were a basket case. I had friends from Guraji, and I, I always get that name wrong, um, who, were, who were saying that there were p- people burning the dead in the street because the morgues couldn't keep up. You know? And so you get this, this form of almost F you, we're all in this together except y'all niggas. You know? Or, I'm sorry, the, the less desirables, the darkies, as it were. And it's funny, the, the only group of people that, during this modern period, actually were sitting back and realized, oh, we've been here before, were the people who survived the AIDS epidemic during um, the 80s and the 90s. You know, when governments around the world claimed that the homosexual um, community were suffering from AIDS due to God's judgment, God's wrath, that they had somehow brought this upon themselves, which we know was total and utter bullshit, but that was the story they were running through. And so there were a lot of interviews I saw on PBS where they spoke to people who were part of this, who were part of that, that generation who were still here, who were still blessed to be with us, and they said it felt exactly the same, you know? And they were triggered by a lot of the things they were hearing. And so... We get this, this almost this, this form of reckoning, as it were. You know, we're supposed to be coming together, but here we are at each other's throats, 
racial unrest, Black Lives Matters, burning things in the streets, you know. And while this is going on, I'm I'm not in church because again, this is a group setting and um, I'm only going to work with a mask and a steam gun and, you know, I'm spraying people down. I got my gloves on. Before I walk to my car, I'm wiping everything down, not wanting to bring anything home to my kids and the wife and, and everything. And you're hearing all these stories. But I'm outside of the church because for the first time in my adult life, I have not been to a service um, in almost two years. And actually what broke the the streak was going to my mother's uh, ceremony for her celebration of life when she passed. And, you know, being around people was, you had to get used to that again. But you're, you're, you're outside of the church. And for the first time, you're starting to see it from the outside looking in. All right. Now, on the best of days, explaining the gospel to people sounds insane. And I'll readily admit that, you know, the, uh, a God who has a son and there's a Holy Spirit who created the world in seven day, six days, rested on the seventh. In the Bible, there's a talking donkey. There's a, a man who, you know, whose legs, whose limbs grow back uh, due to Jesus healing him. There's a man gets swallowed by a fish. Uh, a kid kills a giant with a stone. Um, David, King David before he's king, kills a bear, kills a lion, eats honeycomb from it, from his stomach, from the lion's stomach, from the carcass. Um, the Bible's a wild ride, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's an insane book. If you, if you take it on face value, outside of the, the faith that you're supposed to put in, in Christ, it's absolutely insane. I, I readily admit that. And it's, it's strange, right? You got the, you got the, the blood of, of Christ. You got to drink that. And it's not really blood, but it's an allegory for blood when you're drinking the grape juice at communion and everything else. And, and so I'm out on the outside looking in for the first time in my adult life. And I'm starting to see and hear the way Christian pundits are talking about race relations for the first time, not only in Canada, but in America and other parts of the world. And recognizing that a large proportion of people during this time period, you got to remember that from 2015 to when Trump was unceremoniously booted out of the White House, we had a huge, massive amount of white evangelicals, 70 to 80, 78 to 80 percent of them voted for this excuse of a president to come into office and and damn near almost ruin their country culminating in a january 6th riot that was literally a rebel rebels without a cause that had no idea what they were doing but they just wanted to break shit and stop what they felt was stop the steal but you're starting to hear people speak to racial unrest racial injustice and i'm not trying to throw uh, how should I put this? I'm not trying to throw everything on white supremacy and and racism and bigotry and the history of Jim Crow and and, and colonization and you know and 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 all of these things because they have their place. But you're starting to hear people, prominent Christian leaders, try to dodge the questions of whether or not their governments are doing enough or whether or not Black Lives Matter is something that they should support. 
you know, in the rust on the, on the Bible Belt. There is increasing outrage and dissension within the um, Southern Baptist Convention when talking about race and talking about the church's stance on certain things, not wanting to alienate their, their base of people that are untrustworthy of the government, of the federal government, who are untrustworthy and feel that their country's rights and legacy of, of what's the word I'm looking for, of, um, of the antebellum South is being threatened yet again, encroached upon by the, by the North. And so we've got people who should be not espousing to things saying that it's a skin thing, it's a sin problem, not a skin problem. It's still a skin problem. People holding town hall meetings as to discuss and, and to, you know, revel over how, how modern day society, particularly in America, is less racist than ever. And that the problems that are happening are, are not the cause of government intervention or redlining or, or uh, draconian laws that caused, you know, the attack against poor working um, black and brown folks and, you know, impoverished whites. But no, this was, this was a moral issue. This was the decay of the, uh, of the family unit. And hence, this is why you have, um, you know, crime in some of these areas. You know, and, and increase in drug use and all this sort of stuff. And, and so we see the buck being passed where clearly there's a problem with, with admitting that there's racism and particularly within the church. And so rather than actually siding with the people that are suffering, that are going through the hardship and the pain and, the, and, and you know, and, and intergenerational trauma and all these sort of things, you see them siding with i.e. a Republican, conservative um, narrative. You know, these, these, these uppity Negroes don't want to pull up their bootstraps, that we can't blame. There's a, there, it's not all bad police. There's a few good, you know, it's a few bad apples that are ruining the bunch and this, that, and the third. And for the first time in my adult life, I was able to sit back and see the hypocrisy of, of a church that, and when I say the church, I mean the evangelical, Pentecostal, Baptist churches within America and Canada that were quick to throw their bro- black brothers and sisters under the bus. And the funny thing is that you would see various um, YouTube channels and things of that nature bring out black pundits to, you know, either buff up their claims that they were, you know, what they're saying is right because, hey, we got another we got one of your guys over here saying the same thing, so we can't be racist. You know, um, this is a classic thing that I used to see happen all the time on, on, you know, when I used to watch cable news as far as uh, Fox and CNN and the rest of them. Well, they'll find somebody, and I don't, I don't want to use the term coon, and I don't want to use the term um, Uncle Tom or whatever, because if, you know, Uncle Tom was somebody who helped people in the book. He wasn't but like a Sambo or like a, a race trader or... Any of these words you could use, these were people that are not, you know, we're talking about the Larry Elders and the Candace Owens firebrands kind of, um, just off the top of my head, of people that you see kind of siding with these groups to kind of help them. So it led me down a path of wondering aloud to myself if, to be honest, if the church is the right place, like 
I still believe in God. I still believe in, in the Trinity and all that stuff. But the delivery system of it all, particularly uh, in Canada and America, and you know, is is one where there's you see public policy being formed based on Christian Judeo principles. We have to look no further than Roe versus Wade and it being struck down by uh, the various Supreme Court justices that were appointed by said Donald Trump to, you know, remove the autonomy of more than half of their population. It's, it's quite startling, to tell you the truth. And, um, and wondering, like, after all these years, does the church even care? Do they get it? Do they not understand that black people already have a, have a, a tough time walking through the doors of any church, knowing that so many of these churches, their histories were steeped in, in helping their governments enslave them, their ancestors anyways. You know, we, we saw the reckoning that took place in the last two years with our Aboriginal First Nations, um, Eskimo, Métis, Cree, Indigenous folks here in Canada, where the church, literally, the head of the Catholic Church, I think one point something billion people is, is who kind of follow that faith. You know, the leader of it came here to basically beg forgiveness of the genocide the sexual, physical, psychological, and mental abuse of children in the name of, I don't know what, God of advancement, of a land grab, like it was, you know, the church was instrumental in creating the residential school system here in, um, in Canada. You know? So, I saw this article uh, that I wanted to read out, and it's talking about uh, about what's going on. And if I could bring it up here, hold on. Uh, let me see. Okay, sorry about this. There we go. I think. I think this is the article. It's from The Atlantic. Okay, here we go. So this is The Church's Black Exodus. Uh, Pastor's silence on racism. And COVID-19 is is driving black parishioners away from their congregations. And this was written by Dara T. Mathis on October the 11th, 2020. So uh, it says here... Uh, Across the country, black Americans feel under siege from the coronavirus pandemic and raw from the police brutality fueling Black Lives Matter protests. But some are nursing another intimate wound, their church's failure to acknowledge their pain. Many black parishioners, especially those at multiracial institutions, bristle when they hear rhetoric from church leaders that ignores how health inequities and racism are affecting the black community right now. Others are hurt by their church's um, let me see. Conspicuous silence on the issues. The result is a quiet but resolute 
contingent of black church members leaving their congregation to seek spiritual healing elsewhere. Leaving one's church represents a personal loss for the individual, but the institution also suffers when parishioners decide to take their valuable perspectives away from the flock. It's still too early to quantify exactly how many black churchgoers nationwide have made such a decision, or how many might still leave their church if their concerns aren't addressed. The parishioners who spoke with me, however, had very similar stories pointing to a potential trend. Like others I talked with, Delilah, 58, isn't one to miss church. For the past seven years, she's made sure to be in the faithful number of a large multicultural New Orleans congregation. But after the pandemic hit in March, she decided to attend church services via live stream. Black people like her are disproportionately at risk for severe illnesses or death from COVID-19. And Delilah, who lives with her elderly grandmother and a daughter with asthma, has hypertension. Delilah asked that I identify her only using her middle name because she had not yet uh, 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 connected with the church about her concerns. What she saw on video on Sunday dismayed her. As the camera panned over the congregation, she noted that some people had masks on and some didn't. The church did not require them. What's more, the pastor, who was white, scolded the missing members over livestream. Where are y'all today? You scared? Delilah was appalled. That blew me away, she said. I'm a black woman with pre-existing conditions. That's why I'm not there. She felt like the pastor was failing to emphasize, um, uh, empathize with parishioners who had been dealt staggering blows by the pandemic. Then, as the George Floyd protests began later in the spring, Delilah waited in vain for her church's leader to express their concern over his killing. She received no church email, no newsletter, no pulpit address on racial injustice, just silence. She decided that she will not return to her place of worship once the pandemic ends. While she hasn't uh, terminated her membership officially, she no longer attends services virtually. It's not uncommon for people of color who attend multi-racial churches to hear very little about racism, says David Swanson, 43, the founding pastor of New Community Covenant Church in Chicago. Instead of supporting systems change, uh, I'm sorry, instead of supporting systemic change, some white Christians view racial rec- reconciliation as a matter of fellowship among churchgoers of different races, something that can be achieved through interpersonal relationships. As a result, churches may not perceive the need to acknowledge or lament racial injustices. Others might hesitate to endorse Black Lives Matter because of ideological differences with the, nation, with the national organization and its founders. But black parishioners' desire for recognition doesn't mean they're ideologically aligned with the national group. They just want to know that their congregation values them. If more black Christians leave their church, their absence threatens a tilt to tilt congregants' demographics toward the, suge- the segregated status quo. Swanson has framed the stakes of church silence in stark terms. A multicultural church which never confronts white supremacy is a white church, he tweeted in April. By that, he meant it's a church still mostly interested in white people's comfort. Swanson explained to me over the summer. Put another way, a church's silence on police killings communicates almost as clear of a message as all lives matter on the marquee. Amber Wright, who's 39, felt a jolt of recognition when she read Swanson's tweet this spring. The absence of a church-wide stance against police brutality had frustrated Wright for years. I remember there was no comment or commentary at my multicultural church about Trayvon Martin or the series of black people slain in the streets, she told me. 
By the time of Floyd's killing on May 25th, Wright knew she was done. It's important to us that we go to a church where we feel the leadership can call, these, call on these issues out in a way that speaks to the worth of my life and the life of my husband and my children. Many black parishioners swallow their discomfort with churches' lack of attention to racism because they like the diversity of multicultural congregations, although Wright has found and ha I'm sorry, has fond memories of growing up in a traditional black Baptist church, she said she appreciates the contemporary culture of non-denominational multicultural congregations. Delilah said she feels more at home in a multi-ethnic church because it embodies her vision of racial harmony in heaven. But this value can't make up for their church's failings, both women said. Historically, black churches have ignored their congregants' um, needs in recent months, too. Some parishioners are angered by church leaders clinging to, an, a, to attendance as a barometer of faithfulness even during the pandemic. Pastors keep wanting people to come to church based off faith, but then they don't even go to see people in the hospital because of the risk. Terrence Thomas, uh, 45, the pastor of Bethel AME Church in Champaign, Illinois, uh, if I said that right, Champaign, I think, told me this contradiction, this contradiction feels especially callous to those grieving losses from COVID-19. The unrest in cities across, across the country also threw into sharp relief a schism between older clergy upset at property damage and those who believe, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, that a riot is the language of the unheard. Pastors who are politically more conservative than their congregation risk alienate, alienating their flock when they voice displeasure about looting. They also risk losing parishioners if they stick to preaching only on matters of the soul. In the middle of a social unrest, people don't want to hear about the by and by. People will leave the church and they'll leave the faith, Thomas said. For many black Christians, the black church provides a sanctuary for both their culture and their faith. It's where they were raised and where they want to raise their children. The decision to abandon it often means severing deep social ties. Leaving the church as an institution is the next step for Marie, a campus minister at a university who has boycotted her Methodist church's service since Pentecost Sunday. In May, while providing remote support to students struggling with racism, the sudden loss of housing and family bereavement, she lost more than five family members to COVID, but no one from her church reached out. Wow. As the only black woman in my local church administration, no one calls to say, how are you doing? Said Marie, who also requested that I use only her middle name for fear of professional and personal repercussions. Her frustration and sadness were compounded by the church's silence on the shootings of uh, Amud Arbery, Sean Reed, and Breonna Taylor this spring. After protests began to sweep the nation following Floyd's death, okay, our church leader responded in a sympathetic letter to uh, Mary's re uh, region's uh, clerical and laity. But she failed, but she felt that it failed to acknowledge the church's history of segregation. This is going to be my last year in the church. Entirely, she said. I'm tired of the church and their prayers and their silence on racism. Going forward, she wants to build a ministry of presence to sit with the dying and the bereaved the way her fellow clergy did not sit with her. Parishioners' decision-making has been shaped by the introduction of technology to their normal Sunday routine. Moving fellowship online during quarantine has allowed black parishioners to closely scrutinize how Christian leaders react to COVID-19 and the protests via social media. In many places, socializing has largely re um, relocated from the church lobby to Facebook comments sections. As pastors encourage online engagement to avoid a shrinking membership base, 
But many pastors who post about political issues become fodder for discussion on, pu on public forums and in direct messages. Not unlike during a physical church service, the congregation is trained on its leader's every word, but parishioners are now able to dissect their comments in new mediums. Shutdowns also present a unique opportunity for parishioners to explore their churches virtually, without blowing their cover or being notably absent from their home congregation. Delilah, for example, observed another church's live stream where the pastor expressed concern over Floyd's death for others. However, it's still too soon to find a new church. Wright and her husband have decided to take a break from attending even online services. Swanson and Thomas told me that church's failure to address black parishioners' fears and sadness means they're neglecting a crucial area of ministry, helping people lament and heal from trauma. Thomas said that his fellow pastors must resist the empty... Um, let's see... Uh, the empty platitudes and affirm brothers and sisters in the margins. As a pastor, he said, if you're doing the work of checking in, if you're doing the work of loving on your people, you'll notice who's missing. Swanson said that he talks with his congregation about the effects of racism on black America's physical, uh, emotional, and psychological health and tries to mitigate the stigma associated with therapy. Most of the parishioners I spoke with are optimistic about joining another fellowship after leaving their congregation. No house of worship will be perfect, but Wright is certain that her next church will be one where the pastor has no problem saying Black Lives Matter. Dara T. Mathis is a freelance writer based in Maryland, and her work focuses on motherhood, race, and popular culture. So there you go. Um, it is... Needless to say, this article probably puts into um, just stark view of what myself and other, you know, black churchgoers had been feeling for some time. I mean, I, I could definitely tell you that for the last six years I felt disconnected, not because of my lack of faith, but because of the lack of acknowledgement. Now, during... Um, during uh, George Floyd being killed, I actually wrote a piece uh, that I put on Facebook kind of to, to quasi start the Marketplace of Ideas podcast to kind of just voice what I was feeling and what I was going through. And while I had a few people that reached out, um, there were a few that didn't. You know, there were definitely a few that were, um, that were still holding on to a lot of the ideals and the ideas that they've had about church and about racism and about how if you... It, even talk about some of the the, the um, problems within the church when it comes to race that you're somehow um, giving into a socialist, Marxist uh, quote unquote, which I, I absolutely hate this word, woke um, ideology and it couldn't be further from the truth and acknowledging pain and acknowledging suffering and, and acknowledging what's going on with the church and the people within it you are reaching out to the people that feel the most vulnerable and the most ignored and one of the I think one of the biggest issues I saw is I, I did have somebody reach out to me and ask me what I was feeling about this and this was um, this was an extended family member but the curious aspect of it was how much hemming and hawing you know went within church groups particularly in in the Baptist circles where if pastors spoke about this, they were seen as progressive and liberal and, and trying to sow, you know, the seeds of discord. 
Whereas if you didn't say, you know, pastors who said nothing about it, but they, they spoke about in defense of law and order and blue lives matter and all lives matter and that uh, black lives matter was somehow uh, Marxist and, and racist. And even though it's an organization that has its faults, just like uh, black pride or, you know, I'm black and I'm proud or black Panthers, it was a rallying cry. It gave voice to something that people were feeling and that they could speak to and to put it into a into into a, a chant, if you would. Now, granted, a lot of the problems that existed before and during what happened with George Floyd are still here. Not to say that things have changed because people put little blackout squares on their Facebook and Instagram things and put a banner on their on their um, on their social media sort of stuff. But in particular, when it came to the church, and for me, it was the last straw of my disillusion with how Christianity, particularly in the West, has been bought and sold to fight against social you know, and moral ills and not really look at just telling people about the good news. If you listen to um, any of the more you know, Breitbart or, you know, the Hoover Institute or PragerU or any of these right-wing Christian nationalist think tanks that are out there right now, you know, it's kind of funny. I'm sorry, because in Canada, we thought we were a little bit immune from that sort of tomfoolery. But then we had the Freedom Convoy and all the people that attached themselves to what I'd been, what I'd been recently told was to try and, you know, um, mitigate what they felt was unfair as far as the truck truck drivers being treated and having to, you know, um, get vaccinated. And however you felt about that, it ballooned and morphed into this gross thing where people were willing to now, you know, have their views made against the federal government and, you know, F. Trudeau and all this other stuff. But I keep coming back to the responses that I heard from churchgoers and church leaders where it was weak, it was soft. There were, and, and I think that's what kind of opens your eyes a little bit because I think if you're not, if you're, if you're outside of it, it's hard. If you're in it, it's hard to see it. You know what I mean? If, if you're in it, it's very difficult to still have an objective view. But you take a step out. And, and you see how it is. And I think Chris Rock said it the best where he said, um, if, you're, if you are a black Christian, it means you have a very short memory. Um, I don't know where we go from here. I, I really don't. I don't know if, if you know, Christian, uh, black Christians start coming back. Um, if, if um, you know, if, I, I don't know. Um, I did have another article here. Uh, I just wanted to see if I, if I could bring it up. second. Sorry about this. Man, it was right here. 
Uh, now this was written in December of 2020, so this was right, right around Christmas time two years ago. And uh, this article is from the RNS Religion News Service. Okay. And it says, we out. Charlie dates on why his church is leaving the SBC over rejection of critical race theory. I had to tell my church I was wrong. There is no such thing as the old Southern Baptist conservatism is and always has been the God of the SBC. Okay, let's see what he's reading here. Uh, in 2018, something happened at the MLK 50 conference in Memphis, an event co-hosted co by the Southern Baptist Convention's policy arm, the Gospel Coalition. It was the first time to my knowledge that white evangelicals had celebrated in concert the life, memory, and work of Reverend Martin Luther King. On the eve of his 50th anniversary of his, of his assassination, it was as if they had come to reckoning with the ghosts of their past and the theology underpinnings that ignored his ministry. I left that conference feeling hopeful. Oh, sorry, this was written by um, uh, Charles, Charles Dates. So this was written by Charles Dates, uh, December 18th, 2020. Uh, see, I left that conference feeling hopeful. The young people I met that week shocked me with the warmth and enthusiasm with which they embraced the subject matter. I returned to our progressive Baptist church in Chicago with a bit of sophomoric optimism. We were already working with the SBC on a training program at our church, and mostly all of the Illinois, Baptist State, and SBC national leaders I had met seemed aware that their forefathers fell woefully short of any standard of biblical justice. Holy, that... Gosh damn it, that ain't an understatement. For 2016 to 2019, though, too, I preached on the campus of four of the SPC seminaries and had been invited to another. The backstage conversations at these gatherings promised a new era of advancement on race and theology. So we decided to cooperate and join our church to the SBC in what is known as the dual affiliation. The resistance, especially from some of our elder memberships, was swift and sincere. That was the old Southern Baptist, I promised them, and others in our church, the specter of racial animus and theology and theological arrogance was given away to a new era of Christian leadership. Oh, you poor sap. I suggested, sure there were more battles to be won before legitimate change would warm the hearts of African American churches like ours, but that's why our movement felt so prophetic. At the emergence of the pandemic, the SBC donated to our emergency effort to provide online food delivery services for Chicagoans with SNAP benefits. Here it was, I thought, further proof that the old SBC was fading away. But as 2020 went on, I grew increasingly uneasy. When Albert Moher, Moher, I hope I said that right, the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary said the only political, uh, politically moral option for Christians was the Republican Party. I asked other SBC leaders, good Christian men, to challenge him. They would not. I was shocked, but not surprised, when Moeller endorsed President Trump and watched the two men on Reformation Day celebrate each other on Twitter. Then last week, a final straw. On December 1st, all six of the SBC seminary presidents, without one black president or counter-opinion among them, told the world that a high view of scripture necessarily required or corresponding and total rejection of critical race theory and intersectionality. When did the, the theological architects of American slavery develop the moral character to tell the church how it should discuss and discern racism? Woo! 
that's that's some heat right there. When did those who have yet to hire multiple black or brown uh, faculty to their seminaries assume ethical authority on the subject of, syst- of systemic injustice? How do they, who in 2020 still don't have a single black denominational um, entity head, reject once and for all a theory that helps to frame the real face, the real race problem we face? I had to tell my church I was wrong. There was no such thing as the old Southern Baptist. Conservatism and has always been the God of the SBC. To them, a belief in a high view of scripture must mean an adaptation of Republican politics. With it, the dismissal of critical race theory and intersectionality because of fear of liberal liberalism. That said, our church has, has just as high a view, if not higher of scripture, as any SBC church. But theirs is an inconsistent um, epistemology. They are selectively conservative. But what is liberal in the history of American Christianity? What is liberalism to the conservative Southern Baptist? I'll tell you. Abolition, the women's suffrage movement, the civil rights movement, a black U.S. president who was initially against partial birth abortion, non-white male faculty at their seminaries, and now a theory that uncovers our nation's due to uh, and de facto segregation. I've learned there is an unwritten rule in the SBC. Don't criticize an entity head. Uh, let's see. It's the same approach that created Donald, Donald, uh, President Donald Trump that makes sure that no Republican leader will challenge him publicly. That phys- uh, physiology... Uh, that... Uh, let me see. That... Physiology... No, I'm sorry. That... That philosophy has weakened whatever prophetic potential the SPC has. Moeller, to take one example, endorsed a philandering racist president, thereby betraying his black and brown Christian family. He told his trustees to uphold the, the, uh, to uphold the slaveholder from whom his college is named. He hijacked the affirmation meeting of the Baptist faith and message, turning it into a conservative resurgence revival. In all that, he never criticized um, with, he's never been criticized within his ranks. That's the good old boys club. That's the old SBC. To be clear, the SBC has some long-standing credible black pastors in his tribe. And I don't mean the kind who are token or assimilators. Their seminaries have hosted outstanding guest uh, faculty and chapel speakers outside of their norm. This is why I felt it's safe to forge an alliance. But there are others who sit close to power within the SPC who are silent against the racism that plagues their own congregations. They're ready to see their young adopt the very vestiges of hate that enslaved us in the name of God's authoritative word. They're ready to send their young students to the very seminaries that are both vestiges of racial animus and also the places where these harmful attitudes are perpetrated. I can't speak for them. I imagine they provide cover for the SBC leadership to further alienate black and brown Christians who do not ascribe to their heritage of dangerous conservatism. That's their choice. As for me and the Progressive Baptist Church, I kept hearing the words of Harriet Tubman, we out. The hard reality of the seminary president's statement is that black people will never gain full equality in the Southern Baptist Convention. My acknowledgement of this is not a statement of submission, but an act of defiance. The SBC's power structure wants to maintain white dominance. 
they are happy to have a black chapel speaker, the occasional conservative black professor whose classes are not taken seriously, or a black employee who never bucks against their, their notions of superiority. And yet our departure is not, is not enough. If you sense the malice around Christian denominations when you already yearn for a new vision and a new standard, none of our denominations, black or white, are as relevant and biblically prophetic as our present age requires. They are to us what the Electoral College, I'm sorry, the Electoral College is to the United States, a body that no longer produces what it originally promised. I respect the importance of Christian denominations, the accountability, and the resources they provide for the larger body. So I propose to you that we need a new organism, not led in, in full by white men, a Christian collective that makes room for the essential of the faith and the diversity of the church, a robust engine that finances the impoverished sides of the church, speaks justice courageously to the government, and cares gently for the oppressed, marginalized, and women. And so we got Dr. Charles Edward Dates. He is a senior pastor at Chicago Progressive Baptist Church. Uh, the views expressed in this commentary do not necessarily reflect those of religious religions news service. So this was written by a pastor in um, 2020 in December when uh, when the beef was cooking out there in the streets. You know. Um, so there you have it. I mean, this is sentiment that I've said that has been long espoused by people of color within these spaces and you know it's tough i mean i bring it back to when i was a kid and i was going to um Killarney christian fellowship in edmonton alberta back in the early 80s mid 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 to late 80s and um i, I first started hearing the term bush baby porch monkey tar baby coon black and nigger you know all that kind of stuff and I remember thinking to myself that as I got older, these kids didn't really know what these words meant. I barely knew what they meant. These were coming from their parents, their aunts, their uncles, their grandparents, or people around them, elders, who should have known better. And I think that's the fight that black Christians are always fighting. You are trying to be, be in part into something that a faith that, if we're going to be honest, was began, you know, around Africa and, and in the Middle East. But the modern day interpretation of it is one that tries to exclude you from it. Or at least if you are a part of it, the proper part of it wants you to assimilate and to ignore what's going on right in front of your face. And to kind of fall into this gap of it's not a, a sin, a skin problem, it's a sin problem. Or fall into this mindset that all we need is to come together and we're good to go. You know? And so I feel like that's, I feel like that's something that is, uh, oh, hold on a second here. I feel like that's something that we need to kind of, um, kind of think of, but yeah, so, uh, until next time, I want to thank you for that. Thank you for listening, you know, and, um, you know, check us out. We are everywhere. We are on all the platforms on iTunes, on Podbean, on Stitcher, Google, Google, you name it. We're there. Um, so look for us and until next time, be good to one another out there. 
Take care. Peace.